I think a pastor's whole preaching trajectory, not occasional moments now and then, the whole tilt of it, the culture of his preaching, should be reassuring, simple, accessible, believable, honest, comforting, uplifting, cheering. Jesus said, you know, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor and to set prisoners free. So we're not there to point the finger at people and tell them, straighten up, stop it. We're there to say, you know, friends, we are all in so deep in many forms of evil. We can't dig our own way out here. We got in our cars and drove down to church this morning because we need power from on high. We need the merit of Christ to cleanse us. We need the power of the Spirit to uplift us. And we have both. Well, hallelujah. Hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast, episode 191. I'm your host, Mike Neglia. And the voice that you just heard is, of course, that of Pastor Dr. Ray Ortland Jr. Um, so Ray and I have a incredible and fantastic and just soul-stirring uh, conversation, and I can't wait for you to listen to it. Um, he explains to me what on earth a canon theologian actually is and what a canon th theologian actually does. Um, we speak about like the power of dignity and grace that is in Christ that allows people to overcome besetting sins. Obviously, that ties in with his latest book um, entitled The Death of Porn, Men of Integrity, Building a World of Nobility that recently came out from Crossway Publishers. And we also speak about the power of like preaching the good news as good news and separating the burden of law and duty from the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So guys, it's no secret, I have long benefited both from the preaching and the writing ministry of Ray. And it also is no secret that whenever Ray is on this show, the downloads skyrocket. So Ray was on the show last year and I'm so glad to have him again uh, this year. And for those of you that are joining us, possibly for the first time or the first time since last time, welcome back. Uh, you're in for a treat. Please subscribe. We have great conversations about preaching every Tuesday. Okay. I hope that this episode and all that we do at the Expositors Collective helps you to grow in your personal study and your public proclamation of God's word. Well, hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective podcast. I'm really pleased to have for the second time uh, Pastor Ray Orland. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be with you, Mike. Or welcome back to the show, actually. So thanks for not just giving us uh, one episode, but but two. Really want to make this one count as much as the last one. Thank you. It's a privilege. Okay, so I've I've already asked you about your first sermon um, last year. That's kind of the opening question that we always have. So you've caused me to have to have a new opening banter question. And so my question is this. Um, so Ray, uh, before you leave the house, 
when you're when you go preach, whether it's Emmanuel Nashville or whether it's somewhere else, like what is your Sunday morning routine uh, before you leave the house? Hmm. What a fascinating question. I, I'm not sure I have a fascinating answer, but um, um, I want it to be simple. I want it to be obvious. I want it to be sort of classical and time tested. So probably like 99% of the the guys who are participating with us in this, uh, I make some strong coffee. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and it's always meaningful to me. It's not, it's not a, a meritorious ritual, but Mike, I remember walking downstairs when I was a boy, got up. I don't know why I was up early, but I went, walked downstairs and there was my dad in the, in the living room on his knees at a, at a chair there with his face buried in his hands in prayer. And he wasn't doing that to show off. He wasn't trying to make a point. He didn't know anybody else was up. So that was striking to me. It was very meaningful to me. And as the years have gone by, that, that memory has become definitional. I want to be, now it's my turn. I want to be that man. And through Christ and his finished work on the cross, through his merit, I can have what I don't deserve, which is that sacred experience of literally getting down on my knees before the Lord and praying that his miracle working power and blessing, his mighty hand would be on me and on everyone who receives the ministry of the word. So strong coffee, um, simplicity, prayer. And, um, and then I go look at my, my notes and commonly I perform major surgery on the sermon that morning because I'm thinking new things that had never occurred to me. And it, it usually trends toward being simpler, more gentle and more direct. So the major surgery is not, you're not adding new body parts but you are removing vestigial yeah. organs. Is that a, a way of thinking? Well said, it? well said, Mike, yes. It's usually a case of seeing how I have overwritten something. I have complicated it without realizing it. I have assumed rather than explained certain things. So I, I just want to be a good shepherd. You know, in, in Luke's gospel, Jesus said, he who does not gather with me scatters. So Jesus is gathering people. He who does not gather with me. So Jesus is gathering, scooping them up, pulling them into his arms. And we are gatherers. That's what preaching is. Preaching is not meant to, to create a barrier to people moving toward us and toward Jesus. It's meant to open doors and to be as accessible as it can be. So we want to have a clear theological conscience that we've done right by the Bible and a clear pastoral conscience that we have done right by the people and done everything we can within our limitations by God's grace for his glory alone to bring the two together so that there's there's this spiritual detonation of real people encountering the real Jesus and wonderful things happening that really are not our doing at all. We're just sort of setting it up. 
but I don't want to complicate that setup. I want to make it super simple. Yeah. And so would you, um, like, do you eat breakfast at home? What's, do you leave before breakfast time? Uh, like, thank you so much for that, like that glimpse into the, the deep reality of your heart. Um, but then is there kind of family breakfasts or do you leave early? What's, what's it look like? I just find it's kind of different for, for nearly every preacher. Right. I, I typically don't eat much of breakfast and I, I don't like preaching on with a tummy full of food. Um, I want to, I want to be lean and agile and hungry and ready. Yeah. So I, yeah. I leave early and, and I am in hyper-focus. <laughs> To put it in American categories, I'm carrying the football. I'm driving the ball down the field. The touchdown isn't far away. Uh, I'm in hyper focus. Okay, and and maybe last question before we move on to the next thing. But so so now that it seems as if I don't think you're preaching every Sunday anymore, or or even most of them. Um, Do you have any like what does Sunday look like when you're simply attending church? Is there a preparation process? Um, to be ready to receive the word. Yeah. You know, that's a fascinating question, Mike, because I'm actually thinking that through and finding my way. Uh, I'm really, I am lousy at being a pew sitter. Is that right? Um, Yeah, I just, I did not, I was naive. I I didn't anticipate how challenging that would be. So I don't have a good answer for you, Mike. I'm Somebody tell me how this works. Um, right. Yeah. This is kind of new for you, isn't it? <laughs> totally. Yes. And I, I find it uh, so, somewhat bewildering. So, okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, then I'll, I'll just move on. Here's, here's my next question. And, and, and I say this with, with all due respect, but um, what on earth is a catechist and canon theologian? <laughs> well, um, canon theologian means appointed by... Uh, the bishop. And what that means is I am an assistant to the bishop. I am a a resource and a consultant Mm -hmm. in the area of theology and biblical teaching. Catechist is, of course, a a teacher. So I, I get to, I have the amazing and sacred privilege of being available to, ready to serve, uh, Bishop Clark Lowenfield of the Ang- Anglican Church in North America in whatever matters of biblical teaching and theology and so forth um, might be meaningful and helpful to him. Okay. And, and, and since this is rather a, a newish appointment, does it, does it work out to where like you have a, like a red phone on your desk? And he, <laughs> he asks you? Now, again, Listen, man, I'm a Calvary Chapel guy. I'm we're simple folk, you know. So, so help me to understand this. This, you're, Mike, you're great. Um, and by the way, I just I I adore the whole Calvary Chapel movement. You know, here's the backstory to that. Fifty years ago, this December, Janie and I got married. On our honeymoon, we went to Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. Wow. Yeah, on <laughs> Christmas Eve and on New Year's Eve. Yeah, And Pastor Chuck Smith was there and we got there super early. We sat on the front row in the tent out in the parking lot. And it was Mike. Oh, Mike. 
it was an experience of joy from above that sounds like first Peter chapter one, joy unspeakable and full of glory. And Jonathan Edwards describes that in his book on the religious affections. There's a quality of joy that is obviously not of this world. It does not arise from below. It comes down from above. It's a different genre. And we experience that there. And it's just the felt presence of the risen Christ. Um, so that Calvary Chapel during the Jesus movement, and that was 1971, just left the most profound impression upon us. And now I, I find myself a friend with Pastor Brian Broderson there at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, and I just adore him and respect him. It is such a privilege to be his friend. So I'm just saying you, you Calvary Chapel guys have a really special place in my heart, and I'm deeply grateful for you. So what, wait a minute. What was the question? Wow. I, <laughs> I don't know. Man. Just, just keep talking about how we're great. Just keep going. <laughs> but you no, are. It was, it, it was asking, yeah, if, is, is there a, a telephone that oh, the bishop oh, oh. calls you on? Yeah, that, that we're a bit more simple over yeah, the Yeah, well, text messages actually come through. Yeah, okay, yeah. okay. So, yeah. And, and so would it be essentially like, uh, uh, without getting into the nitty gritty, but is it is it like, hey, I'm, I'm thinking through this or I'm trying to, to navigate this issue and you would just kind of be essentially at his service to, to help with clarity or understanding? Yeah, that's a great question. And the answer is, I am actually so new to this. We haven't established a pattern. But yeah. this book, The Death of Porn, uh, my bishop kindly uh, read, and he he thinks it can he thinks it can help, and it is a theological work. This is not just pragmatism. Sure, yeah. You know, this yeah. book is deeply rooted in foundational teachings of the Bible. It's rooted in the gospel. It's it's most deeply about Jesus. So it's a theological statement, and uh, and I hope that it will serve all my 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 friends in the uh, ACNA and far beyond. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was actually just about to, to ask you about that book, and I'm, I'm glad that you you beat me to it and and you you brought it up. So it, it comes out on, on the day that this is recording. It comes out officially, I think, tomorrow, but it seems that it's already available through Amazon pre-order and, and that type of thing. But um, yeah, who who is the intended audience of it? Who who do you hope um, holds it in their hands and spends time with this contents? Great question. Wow. Here's what I did, Mike. When I began this project, I composed in my mind a profile and I, of a young man, 25, 30, 35 years old. And through the years at Emmanuel Church, 80% of Emmanuel Church are in their 20s and 30s. And I spent a lot of time with young men and invested in them thoroughly, profoundly, and wholeheartedly enjoyed them. And... Um, walked with them through a lot of years of joys and sorrows and so forth. So I, I took that, all those stories that I, I heard informed in my mind, a profile of one guy. I gave him a name, Jake, because I think that's a cool name. It's almost as cool as Mike. Oh, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so, so Jake, let me tell you about, I'll describe Jake for you. I wrote the book for him. He's in his early 30s. He's married, has a couple of young kids. He's on an upward trajectory in his career. He's working hard. He's really busting it. 
He goes to church once or twice a month. He's a pretty good guy. There's nothing, you know, that he sees about his life that's sort of alarming. Things are basically going okay. Um, maybe not perfectly, but, you know, pretty cool. And, um, and, and Jake looks at, at porn every now and then. It's not alarming to him. Um, he's not proud of it, but he's, he's not uh, horrified by it either. And there are so many guys like that. Um, I've met so many. And what Jake doesn't realize is that in 10 years, there's a very good chance he'll be divorced. In 20 years, there's a very good chance that his kids won't be speaking to him and they won't respect him and he will feel alone and isolated. And in 30 years, there's a very good chance Jake is not even sure God exists. And he doesn't see it coming. Because he has built out in his existence this sidebar of allowable, not really, you know, alarming, but allowable compromise, allowable evil. And Jake has rationalized it. And he sort of budgets for it in his moral psychology. He does good things over here to create little budgetary discretionary spending over there. Surplus. Yeah. And um, he does, he, the, bless his heart, the, the precious young man, he has no idea who he really is. He has no idea his actual magnificence. He has no idea how he is trivializing himself. He has no idea how precious his wife is and his kids. He has no idea that the porn industry absolutely despises him and regards him with contempt and treats him as merely useful. And this sidebar is, in fact, oppression. And it's coming after him. Yeah. Um, and I wrote this book not to... Um, Mike, you know, I, I hate religion that just shames people and scolds people and pressures people, corners people. I just hate that. Yeah. Um, I think Jesus hates it. But no one is helped by getting yelled at and being belittled. We are all helped by getting our dignity back, being included, being respected. That's, that's the premise of this. That is what Jake needs. Jake urgently needs to know how magnificent his existence actually is. So the, the, the book is me kind of putting my arm around his shoulder and saying, let's talk about who you really are. And, let's, and then let the dominoes fall over in, in lots of directions, including porn. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So, man, so you hate religion that shames people. Yeah. And... And, and you and I, we're, we're two preachers and we're being listened to by, you know, hundreds or thousands of, of other preachers. Okay. And so there's a lot of potential shame um, givers in the room right now or, or listening. We're speaking to people who are in a, in a few days, they're going to get a chance to address a whole group of, of guilty people. And, and maybe they've read your book and maybe they think, hey, this is a chance I could, I should address porn this weekend. And I'm going to really going to give it to them. 
So I guess the question is like, what what role does does the pulpit have in in the death of porn? What what can we as preachers do, and how can we? Well, I think that, that's enough. I, I have some follow up questions, but yeah, what what can the the pulpit do? And then also, how can we address this in a way that is not just another shame heaping religion? Mm-hmm. That's that was the main thing I had to think through, Mike, in in writing the death of porn because. Okay, I'm a Christian pastor. People expect me to be um, merely corrective, not primarily comforting, especially when it comes to addressing bad things. I refuse to be a religious nag. Jesus did not call me to that. Just this morning, Mike, I was reading John chapter 8. It was the scribes and Pharisees who brought that precious woman and put her in the center, pointing their fingers at her, shaming her, stigmatizing her, isolating her, bullying her. And we're all wondering, by the way, where was the guy? Of course. Um, So anyway, that whole approach, you know, I'm grieved to say, Mike, and I'm sure that all of us pastors will understand what I mean. There, there is something gratifying about being that scribe and that Pharisee. Moral fervor. I, I wish I wish I didn't know what you what you meant, but yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I know exactly. It, yeah. it feels great. <laughs> moral fervor feels moral, but moral fervor can be the most immoral thing about us. Jesus did the word did not become flesh. He did not come down. John three seventeen. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So um, that's our commission. That's our privilege. It's a sacred privilege. And when I look, Mike, when I look at the sermons I preached, you know, 30 years ago, it's really kind of painful because I didn't see this clearly. Yeah. And uh, so getting back to your wonderful question, I think a pastor's whole preaching trajectory, not occasional moments now and then, the whole tilt of it, the culture of his preaching, should be reassuring, simple, accessible, believable, honest, comforting, uplifting, cheering, Um, Jesus said, you know, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor and to set prisoners free. So we're not there to point the finger at people and tell them, straighten up, stop it. Um, We're there to say, you know, friends, we are all in so deep in many forms of evil. We can't dig our own way out here. We got in our cars and drove down to church this morning because we need power from on high. We need the merit of Christ to cleanse us. We need the power of the Spirit to uplift us. And we have both. Mm. Well, Mm. hallelujah. Yeah. And that is good news. Yeah. Mike, if, if our preaching does not strike bad people, if it doesn't hit them as good news, 
we're not being faithful. When we preach, for example, Romans chapters 1 through 5, right? Paul sets out his gospel, his message. And then he starts in chapter 6 and following his Q&A session. The first question that he responds to is, does this gospel you're preaching, does this mean we can sin all the more that grace may abound? Do people ask us that? Do they hear us? And is that the first thing they, they wonder about? Is, is this message, is this, is this morally risky, this message of grace? I mean, is this morally serious? If nobody ever asks us that, we need to wonder if we're preaching the gospel. Now, there's a good answer to that question. But I love the question. I hope we hear it more. Yeah, I think yeah, um, Oswald, Oswald Chambers, I think, yeah, posed something, something similar to that, to say that, is there anyone that would ever get the impression that we're so dependent upon grace that, yeah, so uh, you said it better than him or better than I can recall anyway. No, I didn't um, say it better than Oswald Chambers. Come on. Well, I mean, well, I can't recall it at the moment as, as good as he said it, but it was, uh, I remember exactly where I was when I read that and, and really just kind of was like, whoa, I don't think anybody would ask that question about my preaching, wow. if, you know? And so yeah. perhaps now maybe they would. And I think there has been a growth and a maturity and, yeah. and leaning more and more into that, yeah. that grace as an individual and extending that grace to, uh, yeah. to the congregation. And That's to the wonderful, members. Mike. So uh, I realize, and, and so much of like what, what I've heard you say and, and, and read in this book, um, you speak about kind of like the, the band of brothers that gathers around one another and the, the culture that's needed. And um, I, I realize again, as, as preachers, we are culture setters, culture shapers. But there certainly is a, a limit to what we're able to do. Or um, what what do you think that a preacher can do to create the kind of thriving atmosphere um, through through his preaching? Um, limited as it is, acknowledging the limitations of it. Church is so much more than just the forty minutes when they let us talk up front. But what what can we do in those forty minutes? Hmm. You know, Mike, that's a great question. The it's a matter of the um, the message and strategies of preaching with the intangibles of preaching. What the people hear and what the people sense. What the preacher is saying and who the preacher is. Both are equally significant. Now, commonly, we pastors attend very carefully to what we say. Good. Let's never stop that. Amen. Sometimes we don't adequately attend to, think about, and prepare for how we ourselves, what, what we as men are, what do we exude? What are we emitting? Um, what do the people sense in us? And I think that preaching gets traction, especially in a super personal area like human sexuality and sexual sin. And I'm not even sure. I, I don't think I've ever preached a sermon on porn. Partly because I don't think so, because I looked and nothing uh, came up. <laughs> so well, partly because kids are in the room. Sure. And we need to be wise and sensitive 
So I think in the public, excuse me, in our public preaching, we create conditions, churchwide conditions, where behind the scenes in small groups, in men's groups and so forth, we can press into these very personal issues with a pre-understanding already established that can be really fruitful. So it's like we have this high level visible ministry and this lower level, more invisible behind the scenes ministry and the two together help people turn a corner. It's not one or the other. It's both end. Yeah, one, that, that is exactly, yeah, what I was yeah, hoping to, to hear more about. Yeah, that, that's, that's excellent. And I suppose, I wonder now that you've written this book and it's, and it's out there, do you imagine that you'll be asked to speak about porn in various locations? Is that something that you anticipate or look forward to? Yeah. Or are you happy to just create the kind of cultures that allow those smaller conversations to take yeah. place elsewhere? Well, it's already happening and it's inevitable. And of course, I'm, I'm grateful for that because that shows that, that this book is, people are finding it helpful. Right. And they want right. to have follow-up conversations, so to speak. Right. Yeah. Um, but actually what I was just describing, Mike, was more like a, a pastor in a particular church. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So the... A, a regular faithful preaching week by week establishes clarity about Jesus and his grace and glory for sinners as the message that keeps showing up passage after passage, Sunday after Sunday, yeah. and over time, and let's be patient. God is patient with us. Let's be patient with our churches. Over time, the, these deep and profound changes shift way down deep inside both individuals, and the whole mentality of the congregation. So everybody starts relaxing. Everybody starts exhaling. Everybody starts realizing, oh, here in this church, we can talk about what's really going on. Maybe not in the Sunday morning service, but surely in our small groups and one-on-one coffees during the week and so forth. But people should, I think, Mike, I think people should be sort of surprised And this takes so much wisdom because pastors are not up there in the pulpit to point to themselves. You know, I must decrease, he must increase. But Mm -hmm. along the way, there is a wise way for pastors to admit their own shortcomings, their own failures, without inadvertently changing the subject from Jesus to themselves. Okay, there's a wise way to do that, and it's important to do that. So everybody knows this guy is not the guy who has it all figured out and he's in complete mastery of the universe and he's going to help me figure it all out. And I'm going to join him in being complete master of the universe without going there. We want to dispel every illusion. We want people to be able, we want sinners to be able to look at us and say, Oh, that guy's he's, he's in this with me and Jesus is helping him. Maybe Jesus could help me too. Yeah. Yeah. So establish that, make Jesus the subject, make him the hero, and make me admit to how I am being helped. I, too, am a man growing. I, too, am a man seeing things in a new way. Here's something I saw in this passage this week I've never seen before, and it really helped me because I've always had this question. I've always had this reservation. I've always had this pattern of failure in my life. And look, this totally works. You know, that kind of aha discovery along the way 
if the pastor owns that and, and gently, wisely in front of the people, it's like he gives everybody permission to grow for a change, for crying out loud. And then behind the scenes, just press that in gently, deeply with groups of men. Yeah. And so a follow-up question, like you mentioned that there's ways to talk in public that kind of give permission to people to be honest with each other. What are the ways that we can speak or teach or preach in public that like removes permission for people to be, to be vulnerable? What are the kind yeah. of sermons that just kill it before it even starts? That's a great question. I'm not sure I got a grand answer, but let me think out loud. <laughs> um, one is Sunday after Sunday, simply expounding scripture without ever talking about my own growth trajectory, just not mentioning it, okay. being oblivious, not seeing opportunities to gather people together in this pilgrimage of discovery. But instead, I mean, Mike, I'm just embarrassed when I look back at my earlier years of preaching. I honestly did not realize. I thought my job was simply to expound scripture, period. Not gather people gently together in a journey of discovery through scripture, moving toward Jesus. Moving away from oldness and deadness and the defunct ideas and patterns that I've always taken for granted, moving gently together into newness of life, the renewal of our minds. Mike, Romans 12, 1 and 2. If we believe in the renewal of our minds, if we're experiencing that, we're constantly open to newness. And we're talking about it. Yeah. So if I can preach through Romans for crying out loud and, and not share with the people how my mind is being renewed, I'm not preaching Romans. Sure. No matter uh, how orthodox I am. Yeah. So just being oblivious and clueless, that's a pretty good way to shut everything down. And then the other way would be just the opposite extreme, being so unguarded and so um, sort of the opposite kind of cluelessness, so unguarded and unwise that I just become a living embarrassment to everybody. And my wife is sitting there and she's thinking, Ray, Ray, really? Do you really want to talk about that now? <laughs> yeah. I just back that up, sweetheart. <laughs> so those are just two thoughts, two opposites that don't help. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah, and thank you very much. And it's a very specific, it's kind of a, you haven't been living your life pursuing bad ways to do this. So you're not able to rattle off many, many suggestions for how, how to do this badly, but let's work on, on doing it properly. Um, you know, and here's, here's something, and I don't want to be too, you know, self-disclosive or, or anything like that, but this is just a story from a couple of days ago where there's been, I guess, um, yeah, this sense of like honesty, vulnerability, um, with, with kind of the, a band of brothers with like, you know, fellow laborers. Um, this is a, a friend of mine from, from seminary and, um, he and I, you know, we text back and forth sometimes and he just kind of, kind of joked um, about a week ago about, oh, I'd be great. Just so I could call you up and just confess all my sins to you. And we'd just love to hear about the, you know, the forgiveness of the gospel. It's kind of joking. And I was like, I don't, I don't think he's joking. And then a couple of days later, actually on Friday, um, that happened. And wow. I, because of his earlier joking, I actually preemptively 
like looked up some liturgies for like absolution, uh, actually a, a Lutheran liturgy. And I'm not Lutheran and there's parts of it that I'm not into. Um, but I think that the beginning of the Lutheran liturgy is like amazing. And so during this like very special and very holy moment, um, this, this dear friend of mine called with, with sins to confess. And I had like texted him the liturgy and said, Hey buddy, read this to me. And, and we went through this liturgical thing where, where he stated, um, what was wrong in his heart and was working out in this life. And it was just wonderful to say like, you know, do you believe Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners? It's like, yeah, I do. And like, and just to say like, you know, like the Lord Jesus forgives you and you are forgiven. And it was just this wonderful thing. And then I said, Hey, listen, I live thousands of miles away from you. I really hope that there's somebody else yeah. um, that you're sharing this with, but I'm honored to be amongst the first. And when I see that type of thing take place, it gives me such, such great, great hope. And that is the, the, I guess the behind the scenes working out of some of these principles that you're talking about in the book. Mike, would you send that liturgy to me, the Lutheran liturgy? Sure. I really it's, want that. It's on Wikipedia. If you look up absolution, it's on Wikipedia, but, um, but I'll send it. Yeah. Yeah. And of course there is uniquely distinctive Lutheran stuff at the end that I, that I'm, I'm not into. And, I don't know, maybe you're Anglican, so maybe maybe you, you would like that part too. <laughs> but it was it was actually beautiful. And it was beautiful and with the, the miracle of technology, which also caused a lot of problems too. But I could also just cut and paste this liturgy, send it to my friend who lives in a different country, I'm not gonna be specific, um, and then to say, Hey, listen, brother, like let's read through this together. And it was this beautiful, holy moment. And um, I'm just really honored to to be part of it. And it just seems like the sort of stuff that I think that the death of porn is all about. Yes. You know, and, and I, I quote Dietrich Bonhoeffer from his book, Life Together, which is such a powerful statement about what brotherhood can look like. Mike, one of the things I want this book to change is, okay, there's Jake, my friend Jake, right? He has a lot of friends, but in fact, he's living in isolation without even realizing it. And when, as Bonhoeffer says in Life Together, sin wants to keep a man by himself, withdrawn and alone. And the more isolated a man is, the more destructive his sin becomes. Hmm. Yeah. Sin pulls us into shame. Shame pulls us into isolation. Isolation pulls us into compulsion and addiction. That's where it goes. But we're not left with that. We're not stuck with it. And one of the major emphases in uh, the death of porn is it's basically sort of, I paint the picture of how we men can come together in exactly the way you just described, Mike, and together access and go together as friends, side by side, yeah. nobody above anybody else, side by side, go into the grace of Christ and pour out the brokenness of our hearts. Yeah. Own up to what isn't working and what isn't going well. Come clean with each other about things that just embarrass us and grieve us within. And, and pour this out, Mike, together as friends, as allies, um, as comrades, in the presence of the risen Christ and take it to him in prayer. And he, for example, James 5, 16, <clears throat> this is one of the most important verses in the book. 
Therefore, confess your sins to one another. It's mutual. Confess your sins, specifics, to one another. It's mutual. Everybody's involved. Yeah. And pray for one another that you may be healed. Confession, prayer, healing. This is, this is not, um, you know, rocket science. This is sinful men coming together, disclosing to one another, here's how I am sinning, here's how I am suffering, Here, here's how I am injured and wounded, and I'm fed up, and I feel stuck. And I, there's something really blah about me. I'm not even sure how much I care about this anymore. And that really scares me. So, and, and the other guy says, for crying out loud, you too? Yeah, yeah. And then we get down on our knees together, and, and then we do that every week. Get together every week and have that same conversation every week. Keep praying and keep praying and keep just pouring out our broken hearts. And God promises that's where healing starts coming down. Well, yeah, and, and I realize in that story, I'm the good guy, you know, and I want to be, you know, let the record show he, he knows all of my insecurities and all my failings as, as, as well. It's just, you can't, you happen to catch me on a good week, you know? And, um, but yeah, it is, it is a, a mutual and it's a wonderful thing. And, um, which, who is the Puritan or, or someone speaks about how, how the devil, like he, he's, he's like a, it's a, it's a two acted attack that he does against us. First, he lures us into temptation and then the second that we give into temptation, he then guilts us and shames us for that very same thing that he was the one that kind of offered and enticed us towards. That's right. We don't have to take that stuff anymore, Mike. We see <laughs> yeah. through that now. We can push back. We're not, we, we don't have to live with this. I, I mean, I get, I get angry when I, when I think about the very thing you just described, which is so real. Yeah. Well, yeah. why not, instead of going into self-attack, and certainly not going into attacking a brother. Why not, why not declare war against these strategies coming at us hmm. and be brothers in arms together? And, and Mike, I'm praying that this book will precipitate a movement of men who get, start getting together every week in groups of two, three, and four, just small groups of guys, maybe more, but getting together and having these delicate, candid conversations together, men who respect each other and trust each other, men who don't betray that trust. Yeah. yeah. And they hang in there together and they, they see healing come down from heaven above. Um, I'm, I'm not this. I, I'm not a huge politics really matters, but it's not like if we just, vote all the right people into office, all our problems are going to go away. I don't believe that. Hmm. What we need is we need to, to, be, to admit to being the sinners we are and then become allies of one another, not critics of one another, yeah. and pray for each other, and then we'll see healing come down. Healing's not going to come out of, you know, uh, uh, Washington, D.C., or... Or, 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 or Dublin or London, healing is going to come from this sinful man meeting with another sinful man right. and, and, ta- and, and living in James 5.16 together. That's where, that's where America starts getting better, for, for starters, and Ireland too. 
and Ireland next, please. Yeah, <laughs> we'll take it. We'll take it too. We'll, we're doing what we can. Are are you in are, where? Are you in Northern Ireland or in the Republic? No, I'm in the Republic. I'm in the city of Cork, which is ah. the, the southernmost and the the most Republican of the Republic. Okay. Uh, Sorry to ask. I, I I hope I didn't step on a landmine there. No, hey, people from Cork, and I've I've lived here for 18 years. Um, I'm not from here, but I I got here as soon as I could. People from Cork love talking about Cork, so thanks for giving me an opportunity. <laughs> well, maybe a a final question, and, and and I know you could spend an hour on this, but if you can give like a, a one and a half minute answer to this, like, so what can young or new Bible teachers do to make sure that they can get to to 71? to make sure that they can approach their 50th year of, of marriage and, and just still be loving Jesus. Like what, what can we be doing now as a 38 year old or as the younger, like what are the things that should be implemented that will help me get to 71 and loving Jesus? Hmm. Wow. That's a very greedy, selfish question, but I, I think others wouldn't mind listening. I know that's, yeah. that's actually a really hard question to answer because I, I look at my life, Mike, and, there's so many reasons why I shouldn't be here. Um, and the, the biggest reasons are my own foolishness. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Yeah. So we, we both understand, Mike, that he, the one who, who I love him, but I'm prone to leave him. He loves me. <clears throat> he is not prone to leave me. I know. So yeah. I've moved all my chips over onto his square. And when, same with you, Mike, and when we are in heaven above and our friends see us there in heaven and are surprised that we made it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the only way we can account for that is we look at Jesus and say, well, I'm with him. Sure. And he's yeah. with me. Um, so that let me let that be the first thing uh, I want to say, and I really want to say that. That's one. Secondly, the buffetings and losses, the pain and sufferings, have really helped. Mike, I, uh, some years ago, Janie and I went through the worst year of our lives. And in some ways, it's still not resolved. There is no happy ending. Yeah. Sorry to hear that. But, no, actually, well, you're very kind, but it, I am now, and I never thought I would ever say this, I'm so grateful because I went to, by God's grace for his glory alone, I went to a deeper place with him. And it was, it's like the devil couldn't get at me there. I was safe. Hmm. And now, on, you know, years later, I look at all the Lord has brought out of that. And I wouldn't trade that for anything. So first thing is, we, we, we just are so grateful for his commitment to us. And secondly, we are so grateful for everything that has gone really badly because it's, it frees us from illusions 
and false goals that will trip us up and forces us to go to a deeper place with Jesus. And he will never, he will never let us down. Yep, he hasn't yet, and he never will. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Ray. I've I've really enjoyed our our time together. Um, would you mind praying for the the hearers? Uh, that yeah, there's a lot of stuff that we've just talked about, and just that yeah, that the Spirit of God would apply this and enthuse us to yeah. joyfully walk this out. Could I do a shameless plug first? Okay. <laughs> well, first of all, Mike, thank you for the privilege of being here with you today and having this time with you. I really appreciate it. And I want to say to you and every guy listening, God has a purpose of grace for you, for every man listening. So glorious, we can scarcely comprehend it. And I wrote this, this book, The Death of Porn, which is so really just so simple. And <clears throat> I wrote this because, Mike, I believe in your future. I wrote this because I want to see you and every guy in your generation experience another awakening. And I see this one area of sin, this, this porn issue, as holding back a whole generation. But what if we pastors and preachers, by God's grace for his glory alone, change the subject from our hidden shame to his glorious grace and then press into the experience of that together? both in our preaching and in ministering to men in small groups. That could go viral. And if God takes this simple book and uses it in that way to encourage and empower you and put fresh energy into you, I'm a happy man. I want you to see worldwide revival. Mike, I want you and every guy listening, when he's 71 years old, to be able to tell stories to the young guys then of the amazing things they've seen God do. Right, yeah. Okay, so, all right, there's my Yeah, speech. and not just 49 and a half years ago at your anniversary. Not just the, I, I would love to be able to speak about one day the the first Jesus movement, the first Jesus revival back then, yeah, and then this one, um, to to be have to have to distinguish between which which Jesus movement we're talking about. Yes, yeah, that's exactly it, Mike. Yeah, that's that's the deepest in in, in my ministry. Okay, I've got my precious wife and family here, and then the next circle is my ministry. That is the desire of my ministry. Hmm. What you just said. All right, let me pray. Lord, we put that before you. We dare to ask you. And Mike and every guy in his generation, we all together dare to ask you for that. Show us your glory. And we will be supremely happy and grateful. In the holy name of Christ, amen. 
Well, amen and amen. Uh, thank you again, Ray. Uh, appreciate your time. Thanks for coming back on the show. So thank you for listening all the way to the end. Um, I'd love for you to get connected. Uh, there's two ways that you can do that. Uh, the first way is uh, more immediate, and that is that we have a Facebook community. Uh, you go to facebook.com slash groups slash expositors collective, and there's a, a private group of other young and new or even old and experienced preachers. And we're talking through um, how we can be improving, uh, oftentimes discussing episodes as they come out and learning to grow in our personal study and public proclamation of God's word. So you are invited to that private group, Expositors Collective um, in Facebook groups. And the second way to be connected is through our in-person training events. Uh, we have one that's taking place. It's going to be either the end of January or the beginning of February 2022 in Costa Mesa, California, the same place where Ray and Janny went for their honeymoon. Um, you're invited to come there for an Expositors Collective training weekend. Um, our website, our social media is going to have in details about registration and uh, specific dates uh, in the coming weeks and months. So do um, stay connected. And I would love to see you in person in Costa Mesa, California. Okay, so our next episode is coming out Tuesday and it's a great one. Uh, it is the first of the recordings from our Colorado training event. Uh, it's been a long time for obvious reasons since we've had an in-person gathering. And so uh, just recently in Colorado Springs, Colorado, uh, there was an in-person training event and you're gonna hear one of the main session addresses from Pastor David Guzik. I'm going to leave you with a clip of what you can expect for next week. All right, I hope that this episode and all that we do at the Expositors Collective helps you to grow in your personal study and public proclamation of God's word. Here's David Guzik from episode 192, coming out next Tuesday. Now, we believe in a principle uh, theologians and systematic theologies call it the perspicuity of the scriptures. That is, we believe that with the illuminating help of the Holy Spirit, the Bible can be understood. Now, of course, we don't mean in every exact detail, not that there's not difficult passages, but in the main, in the whole, with the illuminating help of the Holy Spirit, we can understand the scriptures. Yet we also believe that one of the ways that the Holy Spirit brings illumination to the scriptures is through gifted pastors and teachers that he has given to the church. So, can everyday believers understand the Bible when they open it up and read it? Absolutely, we believe that. But we also believe that God uses gifted expositors of the scriptures to help believers understand and to grow in their understanding. So again, I want to emphasize the main aspect of expository preaching is simply to explain the biblical text. We explain its context. We explain its words. We explain its big themes. We explain the biggest theme of the Bible. That's the person and work of Jesus the Messiah. We explain it in light of its original languages. 
We explain the promises and the gifts given to us in the scriptures. We we sometimes call those, those the indicatives. We also explain the commands and exhortations of the scriptures. We sometimes call those the imperatives. We explain the scriptures in their historical context. We explain it in its practical application and relevance to life. Do you see what I'm talking? We are given the job of explaining the scriptures to people. I like something Al Mohler said about this. It's a bit of an exaggeration, but you'll catch the exaggeration to get the point, I hope. He says this, your job as a preacher is a very simple one. This Sunday, you stand up, read the text, explain the text, and sit down. Next Sunday, you stand up, read the text, explain the text, and sit down. The next Sunday, you stand up, read the text, explain the text, and sit down. Now, of course, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but you catch the heart behind it. 